Well, good morning. How is everyone? Good. Good to see all of you. My name is Mike Skinner. I am the lead pastor here at the church. Uh, we are glad that you have joined us this morning for worship. If you have your Bible or your scriptures, please turn with me to Mark chapter 10. If you don't have one, a black hardback is underneath the seat in front of you. You are more than welcome to grab one of those. If you don't have a Bible, in fact, go ahead and just take that one from us uh, as a gift. Um, We'd love to do that for you. Um, we're in Mark 10. We've been going through the book of Mark for quite a while now. And we are actually moving towards the end of Mark. So it won't be long until Jesus starts his final week of life in the Gospel of Mark. And so while it seems like uh, we've been in Mark for a while, and it might seem like we have a bit left with six chapters or so, the pace is actually going to pick up pretty fast as we get closer and closer to the cross and to the resurrection. Um, now, we're in a passage this morning, Mark 10, 1 through 12, um, because God has a sense of humor. Um, <clears throat> and I'll explain it like this. The, I became a pastor when I was 20 years old, um, which, raise your hand if you were here at that time. Yeah, very bad mistake, okay? <laughs> 20 years old, come on. Uh, and we were preaching through a book of the Bible, and the passage that we were on, for my very first time ever preaching as the passage which I'd preached before, was on marriage. And who better to talk about marriage than the 20-year-old pastor who knew nothing about marriage, right? And so I sweated my way through that sermon. Uh, here we are some six and a half years later, and I got engaged last week, and now the first text that I'm going to preach as an engaged man is about divorce and remarriage. Uh, so I don't know if God's been trying to teach me something, move me along, or if he just likes to laugh at me. Um, but here we are this morning. This is one of the things, uh, one of the reasons we preach the books of the Bible. He can't, people would notice if I just skipped to Mark ten thirteen, um, and I'd get some flack for that. So we'll, we'll talk about it this morning. Um, as we get started, I want to say a couple disclaimers. One, Jesus will have some very harsh words to say in this passage, um, and we want to do two things at the same time. We want to, one, take them seriously and let Jesus speak and, 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 and believe what he says, and two, we want to do so with love and gentleness and the kind of forgiveness that he modeled for us and asked us to model as well. And so there's going to be a fine balance between those things. In both of our services today, first service and second service, we have people who have been divorced. We have people who have been remarried. We have people whose marriages are struggling right now. Um, so this topic is not just a esoteric idea that we can toy around with in some kind of theory lab, right? And this is a real topic with real consequences. Uh, and it's a topic that, frankly, has hurt a lot of Christians throughout history. Um, a lot of people have ended up trapped in marriages uh, or um, other such things because of some of these harsher passages that you find in the scriptures. And so it's going to take a special balance of grace and maturity to kind of walk through this and hopefully arrive at the uh, most beneficial point for all of us. I'll also say as a disclaimer before we get started, everyone has a context. Here's my context when it comes to marriage and divorce uh, and remarriage. Um, I am engaged, planning on a happy marriage. Um, I grew up with two parents who never got divorced. Um, they had a model marriage. Uh, compared to the rest of my friends, it was the best marriage I've ever seen. Uh, I never saw them fight. They didn't fight, but it was behind their doors. They were always united in front of us, always loving toward both of us. On the other hand, every single one of my friends 
to like this is not an exaggeration every single one of them their parents were divorced <clears throat> i was like the weird kid who had two parents stay together they're like what's wrong with your family <laughs> what do you mean that why are your parents still together <laughs> shouldn't it be the other <laughs> and they, they were all divorced and i saw firsthand the wreckage that that caused to those those children um some of it's still lasting today some of it if i was honest i don't think we'll probably be recovered from um just because of the kind of damage that can happen um, when kids have to witness a divorce. All of that comes into how I read the text um, this morning. And you have your own experiences with marriage and with divorce and with remarriage. Um, and, and you're going to bring those to the text this morning as well. Um, and so as we read, um, we have to acknowledge where we are, what our opinions already kind of are toward things of this nature, and then try to do our best to read the text uh, and explore what the Spirit has to say to us about it. So, I promise, hopefully the rest of the stone won't be as downer as that. I'll throw in a joke or two. Here we go. Um, Mark chapter 10, verse 1. Uh, he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again, and as was his custom, he taught them. Now, you might notice here, he's in Judea. This is the southern part of Israel. He's so far only been in Galilee, the northern part, we're moving slowly but surely toward the cross in Jerusalem. Okay, so now he's crossing into Judea. The Pharisees came up in order to test him. We've seen this before. The Pharisees love to present a question they think will get Jesus in trouble. The question is this. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now here's why this is a trick question. Um, the person who began Jesus' ministry got his head on a platter for saying it's unlawful to divorce your wife. Remember this, John the Baptist called out King Herod's uh, divorce and remarriage, and it eventually led to his beheading. Um, and so Jesus is put in a delicate situation here, right? Um, how do I answer this question without also being beheaded? That's not my plan at this moment. And we'll watch Jesus do the um, wise response that we're used to from him. So he answered them <clears throat> with another question. You give me a question, I'll give you a question. He puts it back on them, right? Okay, you've asked me why it's lawful. How about this? What do you think? What do your scriptures tell you about whether divorce is lawful? What has Moses commanded you? And they said, and they quote here from Deuteronomy. So this is from their scriptures. They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Um, and so they say, well, it's lawful. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So Jesus says, what do you say? What do your scriptures say? They say, there are occasions under the right circumstances where you can divorce your wife. And Jesus says, that's only there because you had already fallen. Go back to the very beginning and you see God's ideal for marriage, which is for two people to stay together. And in the house, the disciples asked him about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Notice that he saves his most harsh words for private, right? Inside the house with the disciples. Um, he, he, this is not the kind of thing he wants to announce on a hill, right? With Herod uh, able to listen closely. On surface, here's what we get from Jesus. 
he seems to think divorce is 100% off the table. It is not an option for Christians. And in fact, he seems to think that when people get married and they become one flesh, that's such a strong and eternal bond um, that even if you were to separate yourselves, God still sees you together. So you separate yourself and get remarried and remarried. And while in the eyes of the state or in your eyes, you're not committing adultery, God is racking up adultery charges against you every time you're together, right? Um, this is on the surface what it, what it is. It's very harsh. Um, so two people in this loveless marriage get divorced. They both get remarried. And then for the rest of their lives, it's this endless cycle of adultery, 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 adultery. Um, now here's what we say. Most Christians don't read this passage at face value. We especially don't act on it. There have been some denominations who have tried to do this, uh, who have said, if you're remarried, you cannot be a part of our church unless you divorce the person you're remarried to, which one, you're kind of fixing the divorce problem by creating another divorce, and how that works. And then two, go back to your original spouse, right? As you can imagine, it gets messy, and these denominations don't thrive and don't exist anymore. Um, Most Christian tradition has things in place for regulating divorce and marriage and remarriage. Seeing these things as part of reality, even if they're not God's ideal. Which is what you find in Deuteronomy. Okay, In Deuteronomy, the passage the Pharisees quote from, Moses lays out ways that they can get a divorce. He's not telling them to get a divorce, and he's not saying they're allowed to get a divorce. He's reacting to something that's already happening. Human beings, when they get together, sinful human beings, sometimes it doesn't work out. Right? And they want to leave each other. And what Moses did in Deuteronomy was try to make that a little bit better, even though it wasn't God's ideal. So you'll notice in Deuteronomy, that, that passage, if you were to study it, is actually supposed to protect women. Um, this is a patriarchal society, even in Jesus' day. And so women were property. A woman could not divorce a man. A man could divorce a woman. Before Deuteronomy's commandment, a man could divorce a woman. She could not get remarried, though. And so she was doomed to either starve to death, it was a death penalty, or a prostitution penalty. She wanted to find money for her way. Um, the instructions in Deuteronomy mean the husband has to write a certificate and get it like approved by the legal court at the time. And it has to say two things. One, this woman is allowed to be remarried. And two, she can never be married to me again. Um, and so there's a couple things going on there. One, it makes the husband think this through a little bit longer, right? This is not like a yo-yo high school back and forth on and off again. Um, this is this is it. And then two, um, it's protecting the woman, so that the whole land knows she is eligible to be remarried, so that she can find protection, so that she can be um, taken care of for the rest of her life. Um, Jesus does the same thing here. If you look carefully. Um, again, women were property, and so the focus in marriage in the first century was that a woman left her family and came to the man. Jesus, though, points out that the man is also leaving his family and coming to the woman. Right? This was something that was overlooked in the first century. He says, this is not a one-sided deal. Women are not property here that you're attaining and then able to get rid of. You're also equally involved in this coming together of one. Um, this is a, a two-person transaction. Um, he's putting women and men on equal playing fields. In that sense, Jesus is this kind of proto-feminist uh, for this very patriarchal society um, in ancient Judaism. 
Um, so on face value, again, Jesus says divorce off limits. Um, it's not an option. And he says um, remarriage is adultery times infinity. Every time you're with that person, it's going to be adultery. 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 Now, this causes us to have to think about some questions, okay? The real question that I think the Pharisees were getting to eventually was not whether it was lawful for people to get divorced. Everyone assumed that you could get divorced in the first century. It would have been pretty radical for Jesus to have said this. They probably wouldn't have expected it, honestly. Um, the Jewish people actually were the strictest about divorces. Pagans got divorced, right, all the time. It was nothing to them. Jewish people actually had, like, rules and regulations involved in it. Um, the real question for the Jewish people wasn't whether you could get divorced. It was, what was grounds for divorce? Like, what, what was the line? Deuteronomy, that passage is unclear about what allows you to get divorced and then have to write a certificate and do all these things. And so at this time, it's actually a really hot debate. Like, this is, if there was Fox News back in the first century, this would be the 24-hour cable loop, Right? What is the grounds? And they'd bring on different uh, experts and different religious leaders, and they'd debate it back and forth and back and forth, and they'd yell at each other, and we'd all sit there glued to our TV like, yes, yes, yes. Um, so there are two famous rabbis, and they both had two opinions, okay? One was more conservative, one was more liberal. Um, there was Rabbi Shammai, um, and he said this, the grounds for divorce, and then the certificate and all of that, was sexual immorality, sexual misconduct. Um, and so... This could be called the immorality clause, okay? Divorce is off limits unless there's immorality, and then it is allowed. This seems to be the position that Jesus takes. In Mark, he gives no exceptions. But in Matthew and Luke, in the same passage, he says, unless there's sexual immorality. Um, Paul says this as well in his letters. That seems to be the New Testament um, uh, uh, position, right? No divorce unless there's some sexual morality. And then it's not a, you have to get divorced, but it's a, it would be understandable and it would be allowed. Um, there's another rabbi, a little more liberal. <clears throat> some of you will really like this one. And I'll tell a lot about you by how much you like it. Um, <laughs> rabbi Hillel, okay, and he's on paper. He, he's written this down, that you're allowed to divorce your wife, and I quote... If she has spoiled cooking a dish for you. <laughs> so woman, if you can't cook, it's going to be a short marriage. <laughs> this would be called, if, it was the, if, if Shammai was the immorality clause, this would be called the anything clause. Right? Um, you, you look at me the wrong way today, and goodbye. Okay, we'll see you later. Um, there's a guy who followed Hillel, Rabbi Akriba, who was on paper saying this. Um, that probably the biggest reason for divorce should be if you find someone more beautiful than your wife. Um, which says a lot about that person, I think. I think that says a lot about his character. There's not much more research you need to do about this man uh, than that at that point. And so I think really the question eventually would have gotten to Jesus had he not cut it off. What is permissible, right? And it, throughout the context of the entire scriptures with the other gospels, Jesus seems to say sexual immorality. Um, we might assume other things could fall into that exception clause, like abuse and things of that nature. Um, the problem is when you start looking at exceptions, sometimes they overshadow the rule, right? So when you know there's an exception of sexual immorality, um, what does that exactly entail? Pornography, lust, things of that nature. 
abuse. What does that entail? Um, physical abuse or what if it's verbal abuse? What exactly is verbal abuse? Is it just nitpicking at one another? She's annoying to me? Or is she like actually verbally abusing me? Do you, you can see how the slope gets slippery, right? And when you focus on the exceptions, eventually you get to the anything clause. You get to the clause that says, I'm going to find a way to come up with something to be able to divorce you. Um, and this is why I think it's important to let Jesus' harsher statements stand on their own. While I think biblically there are exceptions, there are reasons why um, you may get a divorce, I think we can't focus on the exceptions and exclude the rule. The rule here being very clearly, um, this is not what God intended. Um, and by any means possible, you need to stay together. And you need to work it out. Um, and you, you need to stay one. Um, now this idea of, of adultery, this endless loop of adultery, um, is one that has gotten me to think a lot over the past few days. Uh, and I've actually agreed with this because it's the face value reading of the text for a long time. And so I'm going to say very tentatively, in the last five days or so, I've started to change my opinion. Um, and so I'll say that to you just so you know, this is not me being super authoritative about this. I happen to now think that it's at least possible for God to acknowledge and honor a marriage that's dissolved so that he would not count up adultery over and over and over and over and over again. Here's why I say this. One reason is textual. In the Deuteronomy passage, the, I, the fact that they have to write on the certificate that they can't get remarried to that person and that she can get remarried is God acknowledging in some sense this is over and will not be counted against you in the future, right? Um, it also has to do with theology, our picture of God. What kind of God is it who is unable or unwilling to acknowledge that a marriage went wrong and hold a grudge and, and rack up adultery sins against people? Is that the God that seems like has been revealed to us through Christ? Um, and then the third reason is experience. Experience can actually be a powerful tool for understanding the Christian faith. I happen to know a lot of people who are divorced and or remarried who are very Christ-centered and who, truly the remarried couples, whose, whose marriage together is very much God-blessed and it's very much focused on Christ and ministries move mightily through them um, as if God is not holding this cosmic grudge against them, right? Um, so I, I happen to think now, and again, it's just been a few days, that there are maybe a possibility that in certain situations God is able and willing to acknowledge the fact that a marriage has dissolved um, and not let this adultery cycle go on and on and on. That's not to say the case that that is never the case. I think it has to be the case in some situations because of what Jesus says here right now, right? Um, but I, I, I want to say I think there's room for maybe more grace in the conversation than sometimes Christians have allowed um, and maybe more love. Um, one of the things we know about God is that he loves to accommodate to us because of our fallenness. Um, marriages are fallen. They get divorced. Remarriages are fallen. You and I are fallen. If there's anything we know about God, it's this. He's willing to abandon his original ideal to stoop down low in the trash with us and make something beautiful. Do you remember when we just sang the song, he makes beautiful things from dust? Yeah, I think a, I think a, a, a divorce, um, which is clearly not God's ideal, um, in a remarriage, 
Um, however much a mess it might be, I think this falls under every other category, which is where God loves to come, and even if it's not his ideal, he loves to make it beautiful, and he loves to redeem it, and he loves to bring it back full circle and make it something that works. Um, so I'll conclude this, this part of the, the sermon on marriage and divorce, because there's something else I want to point out here, by saying a couple things that I believe are true about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. It's clear in the Bible that God does not like divorce. It's not part of his original plan. In fact, in Malachi, he says he hates divorce. Um, so we need to shut the door on divorce in the church as much as we can. Um, it's, a, I think, a, a bad witness when we are having a high divorce rate in the church. Um, I think, though, again, God has always been willing to accommodate his ideals to our fallen state. In the Old Testament, there are very powerful figures who are not monogamous who practice polygamy and have lots of wives. Uh, and God does not seem to hate them for this. God blesses them. God chooses them as leaders, things of that nature. Is that God's ideal? No. But does God work with a person in that situation? Yes. Um, because he's that kind of God. He makes beautiful things out of dust. Um, concubines, again in the Old Testament, um, is the lesser of two evils. Um, would the world be better in the Old Testament without the existence of concubines? I think God would probably say yes. It's not how I intended the humans to interact with each other. But having a concubine, being able for a male to take a concubine, which is basically a, a sexual partner that you're not married to, is better than that woman dying and starving or having to prostitute herself and things of that nature. I think you find many examples of that. Um, the certificate, again, protects the woman. Um, again, I think it's at least possible that God honors, in some cases, the disillusions of covenants, the um, dissolving of them. Um, and then I think this is an important point. While God hates divorce, um, he equally hates some marriages, if not more. Um, a marriage on paper that's abusive or destructive or evil in reality um, is not you're not tricking God, right? You get no credit for being married when you're treating each other that way, um, and and that's I think a message we sometimes miss when we throw out the how much God hates divorce. Um, God equally hates when you treat your partner in a way that you should not be treating your partner. Um, marriage is designed to be this joyful thing. It's not always going to be this joyful thing, but you should both be working towards this. Um, couples who have committed themselves to loveless marriages. Um, I, I just don't really see the difference between that and a divorce, really, right? Uh, I think that's not God's ideal as well. He wants you to um, come together in joy and in love. Um, and then the last point, which leads us into my second uh, thing I want to point out in the passage, is that Jesus always holds up God's ideal. Um, and so this is a, a good one thing for us to think about when we think about marriage and divorce. And then two, for any issue we're thinking about. Jesus is able to separate out different areas of history. In the original creation, before the fall, we get to see what God wants the world to look like. After that, including today, everything's messed up. It's very hard to figure out what God wants by looking at the world today. <clears throat> Which is why there's some of us, including myself, who think natural theology, or trying to think of things about God just by looking at the world around us, is a mistake. Because everything is so screwed up that you have really no shot at getting anything right. Um, if you look at the world today, you think, you know, divorce is some kind of part of God's intention of marriage. And, and 
violence and war and all those kinds of things. And then you can also think of final redemption. What does God want it to be at the very end? What will it eventually be? Um, with marriage, okay, you've got two people who stay together before the fall. It's important to recognize that. Everything else is a result of the fall. Not to say that God cannot accommodate himself to that and make beauty out of that, but that's not the ideal. That's not what we should be aiming for. Interesting enough, with marriage, it dissolves in eternity. Um, so marriage is actually, we sometimes use the words um, a little bit incorrectly in, in weddings and things like that. Um, you're not married forever. You're married until you die. Um, on the new heavens and the new earth, Jesus tells us there is no marriage. Um, which might be a bummer, might be a relief, I don't know. Um, I'm not saying you still won't have some kind of special relationship, right? Um, but Jesus says there's some kind of difference in human relationships to where there's no exclusivity uh, between that man and the wife the way there was before. I don't know how that works, right? Um, I do know that Jesus is pretty clear about that um, because otherwise you've got a lot of problems such as people who are remarried, who's the actual husband, who's the actual wife. Heaven turns into a Mori episode, and no one, <laughs> no one wants that. Um, now look with me, because here's the second, the second thing I want to point out. Look at me in verse 5. Jesus said to them, and here I think he's doing some very creative and very brilliant interpretation of Scripture. He says, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment, but from the beginning, and then he quotes from Genesis. What Jesus does here is he says, you have a proof text. You have a text in the Bible. But that one text should be over, overridden by God's ideal and by the place we're going in the world. By the movement he's starting through the kingdom. So he says, look before that text at the beginning. And it's one man and one wife together. And then notice that because of your hardness of heart. Now, you've got to pay real attention here. Because Jesus gets rid of this divorce clause, right? He ends up saying no divorce. But how could he say that if he acknowledges it, that it should be there because people's hearts are hard? It would be like me telling a child, maybe a student of mine, um, I, I, I give you permission to take two hours longer on the test because you have dyslexia and this or that, and so um, take longer on the test, right? And then me the next week saying, I only did that because you had dyslexia and all those other things. You just get the normal time this time. You would think either I'm a jerk or something's changed with this child. What if perhaps Jesus is implying that people's hearts who were once hard but are now no longer hard are now being made soft in the kingdom through the work of the Spirit? Keep your finger here. Flip with me to Ezekiel 36. Page 724 on your black hardbacks. <clears throat> Scroll down a little bit on your iPhones. If you're not reading your Bible, just don't make your hand or somebody. No judgment. I'm a good reader. Isaiah, or sorry, Ezekiel 36. You have no idea. First service, I said like three different passages before we actually got to the right passage. So this is already a big improvement for myself. <laughs> Ezekiel 36, verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my sake, my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations, 
to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I'll take you from the nations and gather you from the countries and bring you into your own land. Now watch 25. I'll sprinkle clean water on you. You'll become clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. Look here even deeper at verse 26. I will give you a new heart. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone. The hard heart. I'll take it out. We'll have an open heart surgery. I'm taking out the hard heart from your flesh and instead give you a heart of flesh. A heart that's alive. A heart that's experiencing life. Then I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What if what Jesus means here, when he, that's a passage about the new covenant, when the Messiah comes, the kingdom comes. What if what Jesus means when he refers to this hardness of heart is the idea that that was there because at one point your hearts were hard, but now something has changed in the world and we can expect different things as a result. Because of my work and because of the spirit who's coming, your hard hearts are going to be replaced with alive hearts. And won't need necessarily these rules and regulations about divorce. Because new things will be possible for you in terms of obedience and love and forgiveness. I'll read a quote from N.T. Wright. He says this, What sense does it make to say that permission was given because people's hearts were hard, but permission is now to be withdrawn? Here is often the scale of Jesus' understanding of his own kingdom work emerges breathtakingly, on apparently an incidental discussion. Jesus believes he and the kingdom that he's launching will contain a cure for the hardness of heart. He believes that he has come to undo the effects of human hard-heartedness and to restore the original purposes of creation. He has come to put all things right and as a part of that to put human hearts back together again. This, I think, is a profound reading of this passage. And I think it's a reading that we can take not only from this passage, but apply it to other issues. So when we think about violence, we live in a world full of violence. But if we think back to the beginning, in the original creation, there was peace. God desired shalom. And if we think back to where we're going, eventually there will be peace. God desired shalom. And if you watch Jesus interpret the Old Testament scriptures about violence, you'll see the same thing happening. You once heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. At that time, that was the best you could do. But now, because of me, and because of the kingdom, and because of where we're moving towards very quickly, I tell you, don't hit back. We're nonviolent. Take the slap, turn the other cheek. Take the punch, don't punch him back. I think we might call this a redemptive hermeneutic, where we read the scriptures looking at God's plan to go back to his original creation where we'll one day be in this paradise forever. Where we don't just accept what's the reality of the fallen world around us. But as as kingdom people, we are able to increase our ethic. We're able to push beyond what's normal and expected. And push beyond into something that might be distinctively Christian. That might be only possible through the power and the work of the Spirit. 
So here's how I'll close up today. Some questions for us. The first question would be this. How does your experience and, and opinions about marriage and remarriage, how do they line up with what Jesus says in Mark 10? Just, I think that would be an interesting thing for you to think through. Um, again, Mark 10 is one of the harder passages on marriage. There are softer ones in Matthew and Luke. He's, he's much more gentle about it. Um, what could we do as a church or as individuals to strengthen our marriages? So let's look at it on the positive side. Instead of being so negative about divorce and things like that, what can we do right now to make sure we don't go there? Now, I'm not married, but I have a couple guesses. Maybe that means more forgiveness. Maybe that means shorter memories of bad things and longer memories of good things. Maybe that means following Christ together intentionally through prayer and through scripture and through volunteering and serving. Maybe that means more open lines of communication. Maybe that means going to therapy. Maybe that means talking to another couple that you trust and that you love. What are ways that we can increase our marriages, make them stronger and more uh, able to shine for the kingdom of God? What other issues are there in the scriptures and in our lives where we might be able to apply this redemptive hermeneutic? Where we might be able to say, look, we should stop accepting the status quo and look at God's original creation and look at the kingdom that he will one day complete. And we should start enacting those policies now to the best of our ability. What scriptures can we read in the new light like Jesus reads Deuteronomy in the new light? Because of what Jesus has done in the kingdom. Because of the spirit that's been poured out in our hearts. These are questions I think that we can take away from this passage that can have the power to maybe transform some of our um, relationships and some of our um, ways of interpreting the Bible. As we come to the table this morning, um, wherever we are, we give thanks. Because again, as we sang and couldn't have sung better, um, He makes everything beautiful. No matter how dusty it is, no matter how broken it is, no matter how much you've neglected it, um, no matter how much it's been graffitied on and trampled under um, God's desires we receive communion as to take and make it beautiful and, and he'll, he'll fulfill that promise in our lives if, if we're faithful to him and follow him in that um, so this morning come to the table um, rejoicing in God's good plan man God created marriage and it's a, it's a beautiful thing he didn't have to it's a gift for us to enjoy like any gift it can go wrong so we need to be aware of the ways that can go wrong. Um, one of the things I think perhaps is practical advice is um, we need to be more honest with each other. If, if your marriage is failing, you, you, you should probably tell somebody. Instead of just let it keep crumbling, you know? It's like having your house on fire. Someone asks how you are, and you're like, I'm fine. Everything's great. You should probably be like, no, my house is on fire. Do you have a fire extinguisher <laughs> on hand? We could use a little bit of help right now. I think a lot of divorces maybe could be circumvented that way. At the end of the day, we're in this beautiful story where God has come and redeemed us in all of our brokenness, in all of our continued brokenness, because we're going to continue to fail and continue to fall. And so this morning, like all mornings, we worship Him, and we praise Him, and we commit to further following Him in obedience. Would you pray with me?